Now can I get into heaven? No. Hello and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator and I am here. My name is JP, by the way. And I am here with Father Chuck. Hi, I'm Father Chuck, by the way. <laughs> uh, if you're wondering where Matt is, um, the last month or so, he's been in this alternate reality that's sort of created based on like all the sitcoms he grew up watching, and he just refuses to leave. Uh, so it's, it's probably going to be a while before we see him again. I think I think we're at, I think, 80s right now, Family Ties era. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I was on board with everything he was doing, right? Because, I mean, you know, you're following it from the 50s and the 60s, and it's, you know, sure. and it's it's his family just reinterpreted different in different generations, right? So it's like, oh, I dream a genie kind of thing. I get it, whatever. But when he started to riff on family matters, that's when I think felt things got really inappropriate. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a little... And Fresh Prince. Yeah, especially so once he started growing a fade, that looked weird. It did look weird. <laughs> These jokes are just going to get worse and worse. Maybe this is what we do. We just get they progressively worse and worse until he like comes back. Until we just start doing full episodes where we just like make fun of Matt. <laughs> he has no choice. <laughs> but he's living up to the occasional, and that's good. One thing I wanted to go over real quick. In our Heaven episode, we asked people what their idea of hell is, and we would we would, we would would say it. Yeah, Mike made a comment that we sort of nailed his. Okay, so Ben says his idea of hell is boredom. Nothing to do, nothing to keep me occupied, just alone with my thoughts. Huh. Which I thought was interesting, because like that's kind of how I always understood purgatory. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, so like a silent retreat would just not be a good thing for Ben. I guess not. And I could, I could see that. I know, like, for me, if I'm, like, alone with my thoughts way too long, you kind of get into this sort of weird feedback loop. See, this is a... Uh, years ago, there was a great reality show, which is very rare that, that the words great <laughs> and reality TV go hand in hand. But there was this great reality show on the Learning Channel, on TLC, back when it was the Learning Channel. And... It was following um, these guys who entered into a monastery, a Benedictine monastery for the 40 days of Lent. You know, some guys are atheists, some guys are devout Catholics. One guy was studying to be an Episcopal priest. It was very fascinating. This was back in 2008. And on the first episode of Nash Wednesday, it's a full 24-hour period of silence. And all these guys have to join the monks in being in complete silence and solitude for like the full day or whatever, from like sun up to sundown. Maybe it was a full 24 hours of sun up to sundown. And this one guy was just like talking about how he just did not like being alone with his thoughts. It just really bothered him. And I didn't understand that. And so now like I'm 
here's you like telling me that, yeah. you know, so it's an interesting thing. Cause like, so I, I don't, I don't know what that's like. Cause like for me, like I spent a lot of time by myself in the quiet and I think it's just like my thought. if it's, if it's too much so, time, you know, like I'm an introverted person by nature, which I, which is something I found myself that I don't like. Like I wish hmm. I was extroverted. Um, but, uh, the idea of being alone in my thoughts, I don't know, because like I can, I can psych myself out. You know what I mean? Like I can't always control like where I go in the mental rabbit hole. So, I, I, I can see that. And it's like, I think for, for a time it's good. It's very good actually. <laughs> but then after a while, it's like, man, I need something to like bounce this off of, you know, not just myself, if that makes sense. So anyway, thanks Ben letting us know about that yeah i mean i can i can see that um and i think and i can also see why you say that uh you would consider that more purgatory-ish than hellish right i'm excited for this episode because like i said in the last episode i don't know anything about purgatory um i've never studied it i've never really read up on it i've never done anything in depth i was always taught that it was just a thing some catholics believed and that it was used as a kind of scam by the catholic church to get like people to give more offer offerings to the church uh, for like loved ones who had died and they weren't really sure if they were going to heaven or hell. Right. You're talking about the indulgences is that controversy that, is? that really, really pissed off old Martin Luther. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Skimming Dante. It seemed like a place you go to pay for your sins to cleanse oneself for paradise, like a, like a spiritual gym, <laughs> you know? Cause I remember some of the things they're doing were very like physically laborious, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you had like, you know, you had historical figures on the speed bag. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't think of like a historical figure who might be in purgatory. That would take you a got, whole lot of concentration. You got, like, <laughs> you got like, I don't know, like Malcolm X doing like free weights. <laughs> <laughs> Jump, jumping rope. Um, the medicine ball. Gandhi's in, there, yeah. Gandhi's in there just doing like squat thrusts. And it's all like old timey weights, you know, like, like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the kettle belt, like legit old school kettlebells. Yeah. Like the dumbbells are just like big iron balls, you know, like, and everyone has like giant mustaches. I don't know. And they're wearing like leopard print, like what, like <laughs> what's it? What, like a singlet. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I always imagine purgatory, Chuck. Um, am I close? Am I a close? A gym, a gym in the 1910s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I say all that to ask you, cause I, I, I'm sure there are many people who listen to the podcast who don't know, who are on sort of the mm -hmm. same boat as I am. Uh, what is purgatory? You know, it's actually a more complicated question to answer than it might seem, right? And I'll say to you, I mean, I'm still relatively new to the concept of purgatory. I mean, obviously, it's something that's in parts of my tradition as an Anglican Christian. So I know and, and they studied it in seminary. So I know a little bit about it. Um, so purgatory, like I said, it, it's tough to define because when you're talking about purgatory as is conventionally understood in our language, you are referring to a specifically Roman Catholic doctrine that refers to some state of being following death where one is they have 
they have unconfessed venial sins that they are having to deal with. They're, they're being purged of those unconfessed sins. Because um, the Roman Catholic Church has makes a distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins or sins unto death are sins that are like unforgivable. Um, whereas um, venial sins, you know, your little white lies, your, you know, your your momentary lusts, those kinds of things are are the sins that, um, you know, sometimes you know you, you you rack them up all the time, right? And so you're having to you're having to be purged of them. And I think even these days, the Catholic Church would recognize systemic sins as part of this, you know, things that, you know, you buy cheap clothes that are made by slaves, right? So you've participated in systemic evil. And so somehow like you, that's got to be purged out of you as well. But it's this place that, yeah, it's a, it's a state of being following death where um, these unconfessed sins are being removed so that you may, you may purely enter into heaven. It is traditionally conceived of as being a place of fire um, sometimes even seen as maybe like in the neighborhood, like the same neighborhood of hell, like it's a, an exurb of hell or something, um, where, um, where you go, but the, but the fire there is different than the fire of damnation. Um, and it is, um, it is a place of, you know, we all have to kind of go you know, that most of us, and that's the thing is actually most Catholic doctrine would say that most of us would probably go through purgatory, um, following death. Um, now, what purgatory represents, this idea that we have to, that there is an intermediate state between this life and entering into paradise, um, that's actually fairly well attested throughout much of the church. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church did not jump on board with the codified doctrine of purgatory. Um, in the sense of it being this separate space. They have a much more nuanced view of it, and that's kind of related to what we talked about last week with this idea that, you know, that hell could be seen as the experience of God's grace, but from one who has scorned God. And so because of that, for them, the big question is whether or not hell is permanent and whether someone might be able to be delivered from the fires of hell. So they, they don't necessarily... Whole, Eastern Orthodox Christians don't necessarily hold on to this idea of a separate space for this purgation. They're they're open to the idea that hell might actually be, you know, like escapable or leavable at some point after people have dealt with, um, after this sin aspect of people's lives has have been dealt with. And again, that's very well attested. I mean, that that kind of thing goes all the way back to. Gregory the Great in his interpretation of of a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter twelve, I think, um, where Jesus talks about, um, you know, having to, you know, you know, things being tried by fire and, and that sort of thing. So, um, and that's and that's where that language originally comes from. So that's, I mean, that's sort of a complicated answer for the question, but it's, you know, so there's, but there's only there's only the two ways you have to deal with it, right? There is the doctrine, the Catholic doctrine piece, and then there's this broader concept that is well attested in, in, in the Christian tradition outside of the Roman Catholic Church. I think it's interesting that uh, you kind of touched on that it's not necessarily like a temporary hell, um, because that seems to be like I, my little bit of research I did before this episode. <clears throat> um, I know that C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of had his own ideas of what that is and how, how close was what he believed to sort of what you described. So C.S. Lewis, uh, he writes about it in this book called the great divorce. 
Um, this is a book that um, is uh, it's a, it's one of his more interesting and more developed fiction books. Um, it, it opens that you know he basically keeled over dead at his desk and finds himself in what he calls the gray city. And it's just this vast, huge city where the distances between houses are greater and greater because it's everybody just in their very isolated, individualistic bubbles away from everyone. Um, and that's actually his. It sounds his, like Oklahoma, to be honest. That, <laughs> Norm, I think Norman is called the gray city. Yeah. <laughs> Nebraska, right? Like parts of Baton, Nebraska, like that. Yeah, it's um, but it's it's uh, but it's this. You know, he says it's it's sort of like a city at dusk, but sunset never comes or whatever. Um, but then he comes upon this, you know, this bus depot where there are people just sort of milling about. And this bus comes and people get on it and then it flies. The bus takes off and it flies and it brings him to this beautiful, green, rich valley with mountains in the distance. And this is beginning to sound like um, Tortoro. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, similar to Totoro when the people when the people in the bus like get outside they realize they're transparent they look like ghosts okay and um so they're kind of like the little the little Totoro that that may first sees who's semi-transparent so like they're barely there and the idea being that they're at the threshold of the heavenly realms and heaven is more real than our reality and so these people realize that they're less real and so they're like ghosts and um, angelic beings and people from come across the mountain into the valley where the people are. And what happens throughout the course of this book are these conversations with these people, beckoning them to come into the mountain range, like into this beautiful place. And telling them, this gorgeous place is totally available to you. But two things happen. One is people experience pain when they walk on the grass because the grass is unyielding to them because again, it's more real. And at one point an angel explains, I think it's the CS Lewis, his character in the book. I think it's him, but it might be someone else explaining that like, you know, well, your, your feet will toughen up in time. Um, as you make the journey, your feet will toughen up. You'll be able to handle it. Um, and then it becomes this whole other thing where like, there's one really, the story that stuck to me is this, um, mother, like single mother of an only child, whose child had died and this angel, I think it's like Gabriel or Michael. It's like one of the big deal angels shows up and is like, Hey, your kid is having a great time. So, um, you know, I want to bring you to him. And she's like, well, why couldn't my son come to me? And the angel's like, well, I know where he's at. So just come with me and you'll see him. And anyway, basically the mother rejects the, the, the angel's invitation into the heavenly realm because it's not on her terms. And so like, and that's kind of what happens throughout number m many of the accounts of these people. They're given this opportunity to enter into heaven, but because it's not on their terms, they just don't take it and they get back on the bus and wait for the bus to go back to the gray city. Some people go on, um, but that like threshold right there is basically Lewis's depiction of purgatory. It's that, you know, well, it's like, the, I mean, I guess it's the whole motion, right? The idea that you've gone from the gray city to the threshold of heaven, but like that idea that, you know, you're going to have to accept things that are not on your terms and you're going to have to suffer some kind of pain, you know, you know, building up the tolerance and the strength to be able to make the journey. Right. So in that way, it actually fits with your idea of like and like what Dante said about, you know, this being like a gymnasium. Right. It's physical labor, physical exertion. You're actually you know, you're being prepared to be able to enter into this place. Um, 
so it breaks from the the classical and, and you know more antiquated idea that it's fire, which well I'll, I want to talk about that in a bit. Why we use fire in the traditional language, but it, it breaks from that and and makes it more about like that sense of trial and that sense of effort and work and and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's Lewis's version of it. So was he like? Was he was inspired by the Catholic doctrine of purgatory to sort of come up with that? From what I gather from my my studies of Lewis, he, you know, Matt and I took a class on C.S. Lewis, and so we talked about this book a lot in that class. He was influenced by Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, famous theologian um, from like the 300s, I think, very controversial. He's sort of the big guy in terms of universalism and the idea of universal salvation. So Lewis was influenced by him. Um, it seems that he was also influenced by a woman named, oh, sorry, um, Catherine of Genoa, who was a uh, 1400s theologian who wrote her treatise on purgatory. And uh, reading through the little summary I have of it, it's very much that kind of idea that, you know, there's work and that there's, you know, there's effort that has to go into it or whatever. So those seem to be two of the big influences on Lewis. Um, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, Lewis was Protestant, like he wasn't Roman Catholic at all. Right. And <laughs> But he was converted to Christianity by Tolkien, who was right. unbelievably Catholic. So I'm sure yeah. some element of that got into him. Yeah. It's just funny because it's like there, I mean, how many people did, did we know at our very Protestant college, you know, kiss the ground that C.S. Lewis walked on? Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many people like because I I never I actually did, never knew this about C.S. Lewis that he believed this until now. Um, so it, it's just kind of interesting because there's so many people who I, I knew that were like obsessed with Lewis, and I was wondering like I, I'm wondering now like do they did they believe the same things he did about like purgatory and stuff? Because they never meant they never mentioned it to me. Um, so were these people of the Calvinist persuasion? Oh yeah, I mean it was See, I mean, it was all across the board to be honest. You know. There's a there's a really fascinating thing that went on, particularly in the early to mid 2000s, where there was this big resurgence in interest in C.S. Lewis and like evangelicals and Catholics kept trying to claim him, um, which I found very fascinating. Um, I saw a book that PBA had in their library once where this like Catholic author made the argument that had Lewis lived longer, he would have made the jump over to Catholicism. Interesting. Uh, I don't know why I'm like when you said that you had like there were Catholics and Protestants trying to claim C.S. Lewis. I just imagine like Arwen holding on to C.S. Lewis on on her horse (laughs) and like the Catholics all like on black horses as the ring wraiths. And she's like, if you want him, come and claim him. (laughs) I'm like envisioning the Anthony Hopkins C.S. Lewis, you know, from Shadowlands. I don't know. Yeah, that's why I mean, we've talked about. That at some point we're going to do an episode on C.S. Lewis because he's such a huge figure in the church, um, and there's just been, been this big, you know, resurgence in interest in him, particularly his, you know, the work outside of like mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you think that resurgence happened because of uh, Lord of the Rings sudden surge of popularity in the early 2000s because of the movie? So like people got to know Tolkien and they found out that he was good friends with C.S. Lewis and. I do, and I also think that somewhere along the way, someone figured out that Lewis was very much in support of smoking and beer drinking, and suddenly, <laughs> like, a whole bunch of Christians our age were like, here's someone we can now, like, hold up as, you yeah. know, because mere Christianity was, like, 
huge book when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. you know, being used as a book for, you know, understanding Christianity or whatever. So the idea, and you find out that this hallowed figure was also a beer drinker and a smoker, and that was like the thing you wanted to do, right? Smoke a pipe and drink beers. Not right? us, though. And suddenly, like, Lewis is your guy. I really think it boils down to that. Yeah. Not us, though. Like, not, we weren't. I totally we, was. We, we, talking about? we totally were, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you, you had a few pipes. I borrowed one once a couple times. Mm-hmm. I still have my times. church warden. I still have my church warden somewhere. My big long Gandalf pipe. I, oh, I want one so bad. I would probably never smoke it, but I want one so bad. Uh, I remember you used to have a you used to have a corn cob pipe that you used I had to call corn pipe, Corny Feldman. And then I had like sort of a yep, Corny Feldman. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also had um, I also had the uh, I had like the Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Doctor uh, was it Doctor Grabow? Oh, yeah. And I got you one in China that was like this giant pipe, but had like, like a really, again. Yeah, had like a really small bowl though, and we were probably like, oh, this might be like an opium pipe. <laughs> totally a weed pipe, dude. You, you bought me a weed pipe. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, uh, as a as a cannabis connoisseur, uh, you actually can't smoke cannabis out of a wooden pipe because the the resin would get stuck, and you had to use glass. It's cold. So it's clay. You can't use clay either. I wouldn't use clay either. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, it's hard to wash out. Well, it gets clogged. Well, anyway, I don't know if I. I don't. I don't think I even have that thing anymore. Um, <laughs> if it does, in my mom's garage. Nice. I. Uh, but yes, yes. So I think that's a. I think that's a big part of it, though, too. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting how we pick and choose, right? Yeah. Also, I mean, case in point, right? Um, another good example of this is in this conversation is. Um, Mel Gibson's the you know the, the Passion of the Christ was huge when we were in college. Remember, yeah. like our university bought tickets for us to go see it, right? Yeah, that's evangelicals it. everywhere just gravitating to this movie, and like because I had an, I had enough exposure to the Catholic Church by that point, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the Stations of the Cross. Like this is the most Catholic Jesus movie I've ever seen, <laughs> and it you know it's based on like these bizarre visions of this like kind of crazy nun, and you know obviously Mel Gibson is like ultra conservative Catholic. And so uh, here, the other good thing, you know, evangelicals leech onto it, but they seem to kind of miss the other stuff or the stuff they don't want. But anyway, that's not, we're not here to pile on evangelicals. No, no, no. Okay. So then purgatory, a place of purification, you said. So what is that purification supposed to look like? I mean, is it, is it, I know Dante is very poetic in how he describes things. Uh, I don't really remember what they were. (laughs) I really don't. Um, but like, well, what does that look like? Is it just like just wrestling with the soul? I hate to envision purgatory as like a place where it's like like flagellating themselves. Yeah, yeah like because that sounds that sounds bad. That sounds like like you have to abuse yourself before you go into heaven. Like self destructive. Which in I take right, and I take umbrage with that idea because it seems to suggest that our ultimate salvation is contingent on work that we can do. So the, so to kind of answer the, to get to it a little bit, there's a passage in the Bible that I'll read um, that is used as like the like clearest purgatory passage in, in the Bible. And this is um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and following. And I'm reading from the Common English Bible. No one can lay any other foundation besides the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So whether someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. 
The day will make it clear because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work survives, they'll get a reward. But if anyone's work goes up in flames, they'll lose it. However, they find themselves however, they find themselves will be will be saved as if they had gone through a fire. So this there was like a weird comment in there that didn't need to be there. Um so the idea here is that in what in what the church has long seen in this passage is that Paul is acknowledging that there will come a time where one's work will be tried by fire. Um, and so this is using the image of building a house. Now, you have to remember that in the ancient world, you know, a very real concern, you know, really up until the invention of electricity, a major concern in any construction was fire because you know people got light by using candles they had fires in their homes like cooking fires you know so the idea that one's house could burn down was a very real possibility um really well made house is going to survive a fire so that's the image that paul is using here is saying it doesn't matter what you put on it right the quality in which you the quality of the work is what's going to matter right so if you use like straw or hay obviously that's going to burn away you know gold silver those different things like that's all going to you know that's it, that's going to depend on you know on the quality of the of the of materials used and so you know and Paul's using the idea of work as the idea so the notion here then is that the work we do as people is what's going to be put to the test and the good things that we do will remain and indeed become better because if we look at the um, I'll get to that in a moment because I don't want to get ahead of myself. But those bad things that we do, those things are like hay and straw, and they'll eventually just burn away. And so when we come through, all the extraneous stuff will be gone. But what is right and good and 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 you know the best of us will remain. Um, I want to I want to take a moment just to pause because fire is an important thing we talk about here because in our world today, when we talk about like if you're going into the afterlife and there's fire, right? We see it as punishment. We see hell, right? We think of it as a place primarily of suffering. And that's largely because our relationship with fire in our electronic age is almost entirely negative. You know, we we don't, you know, if we light candles or anything like that, like we do it because it's sort of like, you know, fun, right? We don't need to do it. The, the imagery of fire primarily in the Bible is of light, and of purity. I don't know if I mentioned this in this podcast or not, but the Bible as we understand it was actually put together during the Babylonian captivity. So the Babylonians were, um, some of them were Zoroastrian, like the Zoroastrian religion was a big part of, of that world, the Persian world that, you know, in addition to other things, Zoroastrianism was a big deal. And Zoroastrianism worshiped fire and water. And so the influences of Zoroastrianism on the thought of Jews during this time is huge. Um, and um, um, according to scholars, I'm just citing other you know, things I've read over the years, you know, you're a persecuted people in a foreign empire and you're trying to articulate, you know, your God, right? You're going to use the imagery of the people around you to kind of illustrate, you know, like, you know, our God is the God of fire and the Zoroastrian is going to be like, oh, cool. Okay. Well, your God's pretty awesome. So we'll just leave you alone. Right. Like that's, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. You know, it doesn't mean it's not true. Just, you know, part of that language as well. But you think about like, you know, the, the decisive, like the big decisive moment in Jewish history 
is when Moses speaks to God and God appears to him as a burning bush that never the bush is never consumed, right? So it's a it's a it's a fire, but it's not a consuming fire, even though later I guess it is depicted as a consuming fire because when God appears to Moses on the top of Sinai, it's a consuming fire. But God regularly appears throughout the book of Exodus and early on as fire, right? And so it and I think that that symbol is very important because it shows that there's that multi-pronged nature that God is a source of light, a source of warmth, a source of nourishment, right? Because we need fire to cook, right? That's something that you know humans evolved to have to cook or ferment our food in order to eat it. We can't actually eat raw food, um, you know, all that well. Like our bodies don't digest it, you know. So we we learned we had to cook, um, you know. But at the same time, fire is also destructive and can cause pain. And so it's you know that relationship with fire is important, right? You want to be in a right relationship with it rather than the wrong the wrong relationship with it. So you can kind of almost see where the the, the similarities with God and fire are are there in the theology that's kind of you know sort of the kernel of this idea in the theology of the scriptures you know you want all the good things of it right but when you have the bad relationship or you know with fire that's when you get hurt or things get destroyed but overwhelmingly right the bible will talk about you know gold tried in a furnace right the idea of removal of dross right you take a piece of metal like if you find gold right you dig it up and then what you do is you put it through a really hot fire and what happens is, is all the impurities of the gold melt away, and eventually you can, you know, you can separate the pure gold away from the impurities. So that's part of the image as well, is this idea of something being tried through fire. Again, the removal of what, you know, the the, the removal of what's extraneous, so that what's right and true and good can remain. And so I think, like as people, we, we recognize that. I think we, as we get, if we look at ourselves as individuals, right, there are there are times where we're like you know, like, this is really who I am. And this is when I'm at my best. You know, we look at the mistakes we make or the things we do. And we're like, why did I do that? That was so out of character for me, or this didn't, you know, that was such a dumb thing for me to do. Like, why did I make those mistakes? Right. You talk, you're talking about, you know, you, you, you get alone with your thoughts for a while, right? Like, you know, I know that, you know, there are times where I have that same kind of thing where you can't control the rabbit hole and you start thinking about like stupid stuff you did in high school or, you know, decisions you made are like, like for me, it's like, why did I pine after that girl all that long? Like, what a stupid thing, you know? Um, you know, so you see the decisions you make and the, and the things like that, and you, you wish that they were gone, right? You don't want those parts of you in your life anymore. You want just what's best of you to remain. So the idea is that there is this process that takes place as we are being further brought into our more perfect selves, um, you know, as, 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 as we are told in the new Testament, you know, we are being conformed to the image of Christ, right? So that idea of conformity, the idea of being shaped and molded, um, you know, painted into a picture rep, you know, that reflects Christ. That means that, you know, all the other stuff is going away. How that happens, right? Again, they use the, the, the scripture writers early on used the image of fire because that was the best illustration they could come up with for something that could remove impurities or could remove straw, hay, you know, empty stuff, right? You burned it and went and disappeared. But as we've progressed in our society, I think the metaphors are different. I think that like, you know, C.S. Lewis captures a really interesting way of taking, taking about and talking about it, right? Which is, you know, basically like learning to walk again. But either way, it's the same idea. It's that we are in the process of being shaped into the kind of people that we that God wants us to be. Now, what I like about C.S. Lewis's depiction of this is that it's not just, you know, me in the gym, 
lifting weights in order to bulk myself up to come and enter into heaven or whatever. It's, it's someone is walking with me. Someone, you know, God has sent someone in C.S. Lewis's model, whether it's an angel or someone that I know, um, or some hero of the faith or whatever, that they're sort of walking along with you in this process. And so it's not just you, it's someone, you know, with, you know, experience, or it's someone, you know, coming from God that's saying, you know, here's the thing that you need. Here's the process that we need to work on. Here's, you know, this is what God really wants from you, right? So it's it's less, oh, I'm doing this suffering so I can pay for these sins myself, right? It's To me, it's a continuation of the work that Jesus began on the cross. And so it's all part of it, right? This, of course, is a problem for Protestants because we like to believe that it's a very simple, like, snap your fingers. You say your prayer, you're converted, done. Like, it, it it's all set, it's over. Um, but, you know, even the Bible tells us that, you know, has Paul saying, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, yeah. there's this pretty implicit knowledge that salvation is a process. Right. And I think it might be a process that continues even after we die. It's like you got to sometimes got to call on the Nintendo helpline, right? Exactly. Ex- that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah, just like when I worked at when I worked at uh, when I worked at EB Games, you know, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, somebody was they, they had they were stuck in EverQuest and they'd give us a call and be like, hey. Yeah, I'm fighting an ice giant. What do I do? And I'd be like, that's not my level. Let me get Blair. I called in once at the Sega helpline. I had gotten Echo the Dolphin, and I just had no idea how to play it. <laughs> on, on Netflix, by the way, there's this really great video game documentary. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's like a six-part series on like the development of video games. And one episode deals with a guy who got a job working for the Nintendo helpline. Oh, I watched that. Yeah. Yeah, what an awesome job that dude had. (laughs) He had that thick, like these thick binders and how to play all these games and stuff. And they had to memorize it all. Oh, that would have been fun. You just have your mullet and your IROC Z and your, you know, I help kids play video games. See, that's what it is, man. That's what's going to happen. It's like, I'm going to wake up. My loved ones and everyone will be around me. It'll be the bright light. And then suddenly I'm on my futon in my game room and my house in Pine Hills. And I've got a controller in my hand. And then there's this game. And that game is my life, and I have to like play it. And, it's a just a little pixel chuck, you know. Then coming and sitting next to me is like I don't know, like Saint John or somebody being like, you know, slap me on the leg and be like, all right, let's get through this together. <laughs> or what if, oh, what if, what if Purgatory is Clippy? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it's just you live your life over, but Clippy is there the whole time. <laughs> All right, that's how I'm relating to it. Like when I when I think of that, it's like yeah. Sometimes you need to you need the you need the representative to walk you through it every now and then. Mm-hmm. You know, makes sense. Um, but I don't know. I, I kind of like it too. I mean, I just it's it's like the, the spiritual act of trans it's of trans transformation. You know, mm-hmm. that you know it's it's like that cliche of like the phoenix rising from the ashes. You know, but once you're cleansed. Um. Is that when you become the cocoon alien? The alarm. <laughs> yes, JP. It's uh, you know Jesus has ascended. He has gone on, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so we here on Earth, after he's ascended, we are basically in our little cocoons at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Salvation is when Steve Gutenberg's boat came and pulled us out from the ocean, and they got us into that pool in the retirement home, and. You know that's kind of an in-between state, right? We've been we've been rescued from the ocean, but we're in this in-between state, waiting for 
uh, waiting for you know the full redemption to take place, waiting for that moment that we're free. So that's our purgatory state. And then, uh, you know, sometimes an old guy is pounding us on the side of the on the side of the pool, right? And <laughs> some of us don't make it, but the rest of us, when we do, we can come out of that cocoon as our full glowing selves. And then we come back for a sequel that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I'm. What I love about Cocoon Two is it's one of those movies, kind of like it's all, it's one of those movies like um, uh, uh, Teen Wolf Two. That yeah. appears as an extra feature on the DVD <laughs> of the first one. Yeah, yeah. Moving along, now that we've, we've gotten the cocoon joke out of the way. Um, so then, how do you think Purgatory... And this is, you know, a question I've been asking, like, kind of all throughout the series, because I'm really... This is... I feel like this is, like, why these concepts exist. Um, how do you think Purgatory would affect Christians and what they believe? I think it comes down to... I mean, if, if we had a Catholic on the... On the, on the podcast, we could ask a Catholic, how does this, you know, what it has affect you? But it's that sense of, like, there's a buffer. This life isn't a zero-sum game. And so the idea that, you know, that it's not an all-or-nothing kind of deal, I think is, is, is probably an important reminder for Christians and I think can really affect the way we live. You know, like, that there's a graciousness. Like, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, don't sweat the small stuff. But I also think that, you could look at it as a motivator to be better in this life too, because, you know, nobody wants to go to the gym. You know what I mean? Like if, if everyone had the opportunity to just like bypass the gym, right? Like most of us who are involved, like any of us who do, do go to the gym, right? We usually go to the gym because we, we didn't keep up with our like physical health from like high school until, you know, now, and so, you know, the idea that if we had just been like doing it all along, eating right all along, exercising regularly all along, then we would just never have to join a gym and then like just pay for something we never go to and feel guilt about all the time. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a nightmare. You've got uh, that one guy in the corner grunting with every flex and you got mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. one angel is going to be like, hey, you know, if you, I, I see you come here, down, come here a lot. You know, if, if you if you want my help, it's only like 500 bucks a month. I can give you some extra pointers if you want. Right. You work on your work right. on your form. So then he helps you, but it pushes you too far. And then you're puking in the alley afterward. Yeah, it, it it just feels weird saying no to him anyway, because you know his job depends on you, and you're like, I just I'm just here to roll this rock up this mountain a few more times. Like, right, <laughs> nice, nice Sisyphus reference. <laughs> uh, you know, it, you know, so the idea that you know it could be a motivator to be like, hey, you know, avoid purgatory, just you know, pay attention to your stuff now. But I, so I think that that would be. I mean, I can see how it would you know affect people differently. It would help Christians to maybe tone it just to kind of relax a little bit, especially these, the Protestants. You know what I mean? Um, well, actually, you know, I, 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 now that I think, mentioned that, I'm going to take it to another level because I, I, there's an angle of Protestant evangelicalism that we've hinted at a lot and we've addressed a little bit, but we haven't really mm -hmm. talked about. I, it's, it's an inaccurate statement, but you'll know what I mean when I say it, which is the once saved, always saved mentality. Right. Yeah. yeah. The idea that just because you said you're you said your prayer, like you're somehow good with God. And mm -hmm. so like, even though you sin, like it's not going to have any kind of lasting consequence on you. Right. Which of course is beautiful and liberating, but there's plenty of Christians who sort of exploit that idea. That's like, Oh, because I said my, I said my sinner's prayer and I got baptized that like, I'm good to go. And mm -hmm. so anything I do now, like is not held against me. And so then that becomes like an excuse to do 
jerky bad things like nobody really feels they have to pay attention to their morality and they don't have to pay attention to their behaviors anymore oh yeah i've met people firsthand who who think that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so if you introduce an idea that to remind people that salvation is a process it is growth that probably helps temper some of those attitudes as well i would think you know the the way we live is still you know there's still something happening and you know and i do worry that you know the the approach of some of evangelical Protestantism, it's almost like they treat spiritual, it's like, it's like the bonsai tree of spiritual growth. You know, it's, it's small, it's contained, it's not allowed to just fully bloom. Right. And so, you know, what's going to happen when you uproot that thing and you put it in the soil, right? Like now it's got a ton of ketchup. Um, if you, but if you have in your mind, this idea that there is a process involved in salvation and that, it's not a process you have to figure out in this world. It's a, you know, you do have a bit of a buffer. It's both responsibility, but I think also an easing of a burden because you don't have to figure it all out now. You should try, but it's not like you're going to get to your deathbed and you have to lay there and be like, crap. You know, I, I said a lie in third grade and I didn't get a chance to confess it. And then now you're like burning in hell or whatever, you know? So you think it might be, it would be nice if it were part of, you know, like overall Christian doctrine? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that if, I mean, because again, going back to the initial question we asked what purgatory is, I mean, I think the doctrine, the idea behind purgatory is embraced by a very large section of the church, Roman Catholics, um, Orthodox Christians. Those are the two largest Christian denominations in the world. So arguably the majority of Christians have some idea of this already. But I think like with in, in America, because we are so shaped by Protestant Christianity and particularly evangelical Protestant Christianity and particularly evangelical Protestant Christianity by people who don't even know their own religion all that well, if I can be so blunt. Um, I think that, yeah, this absolutely would be hugely beneficial. The problem, though, is that it doesn't work within the narrative of salvation that like we were presented with growing up it's because it because of how focused it is on like works is that what you mean like right right i mean i I guess one could argue if we're looking at purgatory as a place of sort of working through the stuff we need to do to achieve our salvation i guess one could make the argument that purgatory is actually happening in this life rather than the life to come but um but I think ultimately, when we just look at the kind of Protestant Christianity we grew up with, like that's just not how people conceive of it. Yeah. And so, what we're actually looking at is this salvation model that's like, because you said some magic words, like you're off the hook, and not, you know, like and like, yeah, that's and I actually believe that, like that's a liberating, freeing belief that. You know, you're, you know, I don't think people, you know, you're not destined for, you know, hellfire and damnation, but that is also not an excuse to just sort of live your life very self-interestedly and sort of act like, well, because I'm good, like, right. I guess it's just, it's just more, it's just easier for us, people who grow up evangelical American society, whatever, binary is just easier to live by, you know? Do this, don't do this. Yes. Go over right. here, not over and it's here. All, 
Yeah, and it's and it's and it's also that idea of of well, I, I actually when I get right, when we get right down to it, I, I actually believe that our attitudes toward hell is largely based on revenge. I think we, so too. yeah, we want to see certain people in hell. Yeah, I mean, it's like and what, the idea. Yeah, I was say, like, and the idea that someone might not go to hell. Like we don't like that, especially you know if it's a you know if it's a Democrat. Yeah, I think we also. You know, yeah, I think we also especially like the idea of someone in hell who like knows why they're there and they can't get out. I think that's right. a, that's what I said in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, and it's a it's cruelty. It's a it's a it's yeah. a piece of cruelty that we hold on to in our in our worldview that I just don't think is very consistent with the Christian gospel. Right, and so. I think if we, once we can kind of get past that idea and we can open up the possibility, right, that, you know, it's not like die and go to hell. Like, yeah, you get yours, you know, right. it's, you know, and I'm going to get mine because I know I'm going to heaven, right? It's right. this idea of we're actually trusting in God's mercy and grace because we may find out that we have work still to do after we die and so i think it makes us more reliant on god's mercy and grace in the way we live our lives rather than thinking that we've accomplished it ourselves so our own you know pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps or whatever yeah and so it's a way to avoid having to um be graceful and merciful to fulfill right. those parts of christianity mm-hmm. and just to kind of erase the you know the fire and brimstone aspect of it um yeah so i mean do you do you believe in purgatory? I don't know that I believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory mm-hmm. because I don't know that I I, I, I I don't see a need for it. I'm much more persuaded by the idea that hell and purgatory are the same place and that hell is an escapable place. Um, I'm going to share something that okay. I, I found for this episode. Um, and it, it comes from the Cambridge Companion to Orthodox Christian Theology. And it's an article on eschatology, which is the fancy word for the end of the world, the end of all things, written by um, Bishop Hilarion Alfayev. What a hilarious name. uh, So he writes, according to many theological and liturgical texts of the Eastern Church, Christ, in his descent into hell, liberated all people from hell without exception. Truly, hell has been abolished by the resurrection of Christ. It is no longer unavoidable for people and no longer holds them under its power. But people recreate it for themselves each time sin is consciously committed and not followed by repentance. And he goes on to say that it's not his issue with purgatory is this idea that it creates one's sense of repent of remorse and sorrow but doesn't provide opportunity for actual repentance um so he goes on to say the eastern christian tradition never recognized the doctrine of purgatory and never made a distinction between eternal torments from which liberation is impossible and a fire and a fire of purgatory from which one can be saved according to orthodox teaching it is possible to be freed from the torments of hell the practice of praying for the departed and even for those in hell at Pentecost Vespers is based on this. 
However, this liberation occurs not because of some automatic necessity and not because the sinner serves a kind of prison term established for those who commit certain sins, but through the prayers of the church and God's ineffable love for man. Until the final verdict of the judge is pronounced, there is hope for all the departed to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the the orthodox idea then is that, like, you know, we don't, it's like, oh, well, you, you didn't confess this, so now you got to go and do your time or whatever. Um, but rather this, this really intense idea of God's mercy and grace and that, you know, we want people to escape it. And if we go into this other Orthodox idea that hell and heaven are really the same place, just shifted by our experience, right? That if we're talking about somebody who was put in a position where they realize through their, through this painful proximity to God you know, their wrongdoing, then it then they have the opportunity to change and to see this in a different perspective, then they realize that that state of being before them was a purgatory. It was them having to deal with some stuff they needed to deal with. And now they've actually repented. They've turned, you know, the metanoia. They've had the transformation that shifts their perspective to see God in his light and his mercy. So getting even back to that conversation we had around, you know, fire having its two sides, right? Um, once you have the right relationship with it, it's it's a healthy thing. And, and, and again, like this idea that we pray for people after they die, you know, hoping that, you know, our prayers are somehow doing something for them. You know, I just think it helps us be in a much more merciful state of being as, as Christians and that, you know, we ultimately have to believe that God doesn't lose anything that God loves. So... I do so I do believe in a state after death where people who have sinned have to deal with those sins. But I don't believe in it in the sense of like arbitrary lists of venial and mortal sins. I think that I think that there are some people whose lives are so defined by their sinfulness that they're going to have to deal with that. And God's going to deal with that with them after they die. Um, and, and so I think that's really the bigger thing we're talking about here. And that gets back to something I said last week, which was, you know, what's more powerful annihilation or transformation. And I think transformation is far more powerful and I think the proper Christian posture for us is we look at like some of the most wicked people we can think of. We should want them to be transformed. We shouldn't want them to be destroyed. Um, I'll share a personal story. My attitudes on this really changed when um, Osama bin Laden was at, was assassinated. Because um, I remember when I saw the news that he'd been assassinated, and I just felt really profound sadness. I was in my dorm in seminary. It's my, I think it was my senior year of seminary. And I just, I felt just this profound sadness over Bin Laden's death. And I was like, why do I feel so sad? And I remember the conversation that I'd had with my youth pastor when we would go surfing together. He was talking just after 9-11. He was saying that he had taken to praying for Osama bin Laden's salvation because he said, you know, St. Paul had been a terrorist. Um, you know, he was a radicalized person. He was, you know, a religiously radicalized person. And once he was converted, look what he could accomplish. He said, so imagine like what Osama bin Laden could accomplish if he were to have been converted, you know, what would the world see, you know, if Osama bin Laden had a dramatic conversion, if he could apply that kind of passion and energy to like, 
the love of God for humanity and everything. And so I was sad when 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 Bin Laden died because I realized you know we were robbed of that, you know. I mean it's and that's not to say that killing him was bad. Um, you know I think I sort of do sometimes buy as much of a pacifist as I am. I sometimes do buy into that Star Wars idea that some people are too dangerous to be left alive. Um, but um, but I think that it, but at the same time I think there's an inherent tragedy in that we didn't get to see what a redeemed bin Laden looked like in this world. And the world was robbed of the passion energy of that person who was corrupted by a very twisted thing. So I started to think about, well, the most loving thing for me is to want to see someone like him changed and transformed, not removed and destroyed and taken care of. And that that's the more powerful victory in the long run is the person who sees the error of their ways and changes. And which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I really, really, really despise the ending of Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> um, because it sets the whole movie up over the idea of healing Palpatine and then just doesn't do that. That's interesting. I thought you were going to say Kylo Ren. Well, that too. I would love to have seen Kylo. I would love. You and I talked about that. I would love yeah. to have seen you know a storyline where Ben Solo is now having to deal with the you know facing the consequences of his sins. You, do you know what uh, sprawling franchise ended that way, where all of the uh, monsters or bad guys were healed and converted and were suddenly good? The Matrix. Nope. Power Rangers. Really. Yes. Wow. Okay. Now I'm interested in Power there, Rangers. There, there was a. Uh, I can't believe we're going into this. <laughs> this is how ridiculous our freaking podcast is. What a weird show. Hey. <laughs> but there is. There was this. Uh, I think it's called Day of the. I don't remember. I don't know. But it was the big, sort of Avengers Endgame episode of Power Rangers, where everybody came together. Even Bulk and Skull were there. Uh, right, right. And they defeated Zordon. Defeated the ultimate evil by sacrificing himself, I think. And uh, they like released his energy or something, and it destroyed the bad guy. And then like you saw like Rita and Lord Zed were suddenly turned into like just normal people, and they do the tango off camera. <laughs> like Lord Zed is like in a polo shirt and khakis, and Rita looks huh. like a Rita Repulsa looks like a mom, like you know. Huh. So it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Power Rangers into that way. And I, said, I mentioned the Matrix. The Matrix has a similar thing and people hated it. Right. You know, the idea that, you know, Neo sacrifices himself for the sake of peace mm-hmm. and coexistence. And that's what the movie ends is with the machines aren't defeated. They coexist. Right. Yeah. Because they all sort of represent parts of humanity and existence. You know, right. Zion represents the body. The Matrix represents the mind, and the, the machines represent the spirit, and they all have to like live in harmony as one, and so everyone has the choice right. of whether or not they want to make it wake up in the Matrix or not. Right. It's a little bit of a, of a mixed metaphor, though, because you know the Matrix is a system of control, ultimately. So, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, at least that's, what, that's, a, that's how Cornell West uh, described it. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you have the Matrix, listen to those commentaries. They'll, they'll blow your mind. Yeah, well, and I just, you know, and also that's, that's a film series that people have been sleeping on. And because it didn't, because it didn't end with like, 
dingo boom. Yeah, I know. Admittedly, I was one of them. I did not like it, but until recently, you know, I started to really appreciate it. And I am I am stoked for the Matrix Four, uh, aka the Matrix Resurrections. I'd like to talk about what I've learned because this is our, our okay. this is our penultimate episode. We talked about heaven, we talked about hell, we just talked about purgatory, and then next week we're going to talk about uh, Pixar's Soul as a way to kind of cap off the month and talk about the afterlife and stuff. Um, but I want to talk about sort of what I've learned, and I think ultimately what I've learned, Chuck through these discussions with you is that you know the final destination is heaven yep and i think that when it comes to scripture and stuff that might be made the most clear uh that any kind of idea about the afterlife right like there's Mm -hmm. no there's no sort of like vague mention of it that people have to like piece together like it says, it says there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be heaven. We're all going to go mm-hmm. there. You're going to yep. be there with God, or or it's going to come here. You, the, the, yeah. the, you know what I mean, <laughs> right? Um, whether, yeah, whether we go there, or it comes here. The ultimate destination is heaven. Yes. Yeah. So that's it's that is crystal clear in the scripture. You cannot misinterpret that. Right. That is the trajectory of the story and and, and creation. Yes. Right. So concept, but concepts like hell, purgatory, or the stasis you go into when you die that we sort of you know, mentioned throughout the episodes, it's all debatable, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and what we know, those concepts are just like a collage of different interpretations that have been synthesized by other people to create their own sort of narrative to make sense of the Christian journey. But the point of the end is that we are at peace. It's supposed to be at the end of a life that was used to make things better. Not just right. for you, but for the world and the people you share the world with. And it also kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm also kind of tying it back into my understanding of spirituality, which is that we are all connected in some way or another, physically, spiritually. I mean, we are all connected. To me, that is spirituality. Right. Um, and that as much as we try to separate ourselves uh, from society, from each other, um, you can't escape that what you do will eventually affect somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why you should be mindful of it, um, not because you might go to hell, or you might get punished, or you'll be rewarded by going to heaven, but because you know we're supposed to lessen the suffering here, and we should be doing it by any means necessary. Can I interject a point real quick? Go ahead. So this, just because I, I'm doing a book study with my church, and the chapter we read brought this up, and I just thought it was an interesting uh, addendum to what you're saying. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, writes about um, what's happening to this church in Corinth that's just kind of a mess. Um, There's all these divisions in the church. There's different camps of people who believe certain things. And on top of that, rich people and poor people have have all kinds of tense relationships. And one of the things that's happening is when it comes to like the Sunday liturgy, the Eucharist, um, it was, you know, typically in the ancient world, um, in, in the early church, worship services happened either before or after work, sometimes after work. Um, and so what would happen is that the wealthy people would start the liturgy early. And while they were there, because the early worship of the church was like a communal meal. And so they would start this and then they would get all the like the best cuts of meat, the best food. Like they'd leave, And then they'd leave the dregs for the, for the poor and working class who had to come to church late after they got off work. 
Paul is furious about this. And but what Paul says to the church, he says, because of your abuses of this supper, of the Lord's Supper, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have died. Now, we're studying at my church um, uh, Dr. Richards' book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Dr. Richards is a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Um, he co-wrote the book with one of his uh, grad students by the name of uh, Brandon O'Brien. And in this chapter where we're talk that, 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 we're, that we're studying actually tonight in my class, the tonight of recording, is um, about honor and shame. And uh, the authors of the book point out that Paul is in an honor and shame culture. And what Paul is cautioning, he says, so, you know, in our world, which is more of like a arbitrary right and wrong, you know, individual is right and wrong kind of culture. We hear Paul's words saying that we, that, that because people are doing bad things, they're getting sick and dying while participating in this meal. Paul is actually not making the connection. He's not saying that the people who are getting sick and dying are the people doing the bad things. He is saying that as a result of the bad things, people are getting sick and dying. And so what he's basically getting is that innocent people are suffering because of the abuses of other people. Now, one can even take it to a very practical level in that because they started the meal early, by the time people are coming to the food, coming to the meal, the food is spoiled. And so they're getting sick because they're eating spoiled food. Um, but either way, the point that Paul is trying to make is that you know your actions have impacts on others. It's not about how it impacts you, it's how it impacts the people around you. And just reading it that way just really kind of blew my mind a little bit, um, um, just reading that today, that it's, that you know, that, you know, Paul's not saying like, hey, do this so you can avoid hell, do this so you can get to heaven. He's saying the behaviors you're doing are hurting people. And so you should be doing things that don't hurt people. That's that, and, and, and it's amazing how often we quote First Corinthians, right? But we we use it so wrongly. It's interesting because it also kind of reminds me, even though I haven't read the entire thing, but when I think about like the early like Jewish laws, you know, the six hundred mm -hmm. laws, and like how arbitrary they feel. Don't eat shellfish. Right. Like, what does that mean? Okay, God hates shellfish for some reason. Like, no, right. like it, it's unhealthy. <laughs> it could kill you. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know. There is a practical application to what's been set before you, right? Right. It's right. not just because it's like an act. Partaking it, you will actually be helping people. Right. 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 And that, and, and fascinatingly, you know, later in the Christian tradition, where we see that Jesus, you know, says like, "Don't call anything unclean," right? You know, this whole idea of you know, there's there, the idea of the kosher laws are no longer applicable, right? What Jesus is addressing there is the fact that we took. You know, we humans have taken this law that was meant to be kind of that, right? This practical sort of thing. But then we started applying all these moral qualities and moral categories to it, right? And so the idea that, like, we find a certain food repulsive, well, that means that people who eat that food are also repulsive, right? And so, right, so it's addressing that, that, that the way that we can take something that's meant to be good and twist it into something right. else. I mean, it's, it's like how people look at, someone who might be an addict you know right when you should be looking at them as somebody who like needs help yeah well and and you know and this this actually addresses a really interesting thing because i think i don't know if i've mentioned this here but it's like here in hawaii homelessness is a really big issue in honolulu and particularly people who are drug addicted you know meth meth entered the united states through hawaii 
uh, through Honolulu. And so, you know, there are definitely some tweakers running around outside my church from time to time. And when they show up, they don't always show up like looking for help. They just show up and cause a ruckus um, sometimes. And it's hard because I can look at these folks and I, like you're saying, they need help, but the kind of help they need is so beyond my pay grade, right? Like I can give you a sandwich. I can't, I can't make you clean, right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. And so this gets to that conversation about how the way we live our faith is bigger than just our own individual bubbles, right? It's about, you know, this is when it starts even getting into our politics, right? Because we need people who are gifted and skilled in how to help these other people, right? right. You know, anyone will tell you that the reason why, like, Drug addict, drug addicted homeless people are running around on the street is because we don't have the services in place to help those folks. Right. And everybody else is trying to pass it off to someone else. And so, right. So like that's that's where this kind of social responsibility and and our responsibility to each other comes into play, which becomes you know very collectivistic, becomes uh, borderline socialist. But there's a reason why the Book of Acts says that everybody in the church is selling all their possessions and giving to the people as they need. You know, I mean, let's be honest, what's going on there, right? Totally. There's a recognition that we are responsible uh, to and for each other. So Absolutely. And I say all that to, to make the point that, you know, make no mistake, people are suffering. Forget about hell or purgatory. You know, they're suffering all around us, like, in, in, our, in our life now. And it's not good enough anymore to tell people, you know, who are suffering that, well, you know, it'll get better for you when you're dead. Right. You know, there's something waiting for you on the other side. So, you know, in the meantime, just bootstrap it, kiddo. Right. Right. So, no, we're supposed to be making things better here right now, today. And that's that is what I'm getting. I mean, and sure, I already knew that. <laughs> but it's interesting that the afterlife could reinforce that so much. Right. When you think of the afterlife, oh, it's just like a place where I go or it's just sort of a a comforting thing so I don't have to really do anything. No, no, no. The belief in the afterlife should enforce your beliefs that I need to be doing stuff now here. Right. Well, and this is, this is where the inevitable question comes up. And I'm sure there's got to be at least one of our listeners, viewers that probably has broached this question which is then okay well if everybody's if everybody's getting to heaven when all is said and done what's the point of being christian like why not be anything my answer to that is you're christian because for me as a christian i believe that this is the truth the truth is that jesus has saved us and it's the idea for me that we as a result of that knowledge we are now liberated from one, the burden of having to save ourselves, but also we have now been, our eyes have been opened to oh, just a, a life defined by just profound gratitude and that we should now, you know, really kind of want everybody to know that and everybody to know that liberation and know that freedom. And to know that is, you know, going to involve, you know, this idea of feeling, you know, liberated is going to involve us doing things it's not just like oh here's how you can feel good about yourself but it's also you know helping people rid themselves of the baggage that enslaves them you know i think you know i go back to um the story of exodus 
one of the things that Christians really miss in that story is what Moses tells Pharaoh is Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go so that they can go back to their homeland and worship their God. So we love the whole like, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? Freedom for the sake of freedom. But that's actually not what they're called to do. They're called to be free so that they can worship. And so this idea for us as Christians, right, our job is to want everybody to worship with us, right? Like that's the whole, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Worship Jesus. We want you to all worship Jesus because that's, you know, what conversion is all about. Well, if we look at the precedent set in the story of Exodus, then that means we have to do what's necessary to help people feel free to worship. You know, if somebody's working, if somebody's working two, three jobs because they can't put enough food on their plate, they don't have the energy to come to church. So maybe we should be trying to ease the burden so that they could come to church and worship. Or, you know, if, you know, or, you know, if they're, if they're drug addicted, you know, and they're passed out in an alley, you know, it just, it just becomes this whole, this whole bigger conversation for us as Christians, that it's not just about, you know, advertising an idea. And then like, like you said, like, yeah, I just pray to Jesus. And even though it's rough for you now, it's going to get better for you after you die. Yeah. Um, How convenient. You know, but it's, yeah, but it's more <laughs> our, our, you know, part of our work to be like, hey, you know, like, <laughs> you, we're all suffering and this good news has been proclaimed and this good news is to make sure that everybody feels a taste of heaven now. So what do we got to do to make that happen? Right. And that involves everybody, right? You can't just say like, oh, well, that's the job of the priest. I'm telling you as a priest, like, I'm only, I'm only equipped to do so much. I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not an addiction counselor. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there are people out there who are those experts. They have those passions. They have that interest. So, like, what do we got to do to empower them to do their work to help? You know, so, I mean, to me, it just becomes a whole social transformation kind of thing. Yeah. And I really think that there are powers in the world that they really like the idea that it's like, oh, it's just a little individual private matter. You, you. You worship the Lord on your own. You just the thing you do on Sunday. But when you come out of your church on Sunday, here's how you're going to behave. And it's mm-hmm. going to be scat, the status quo behavior. And it's going to be, you know, nobody, you know, wants to change and affect that. You know, I think it's no coincidence why these super rich pastors support super rich politicians yeah. that don't want to see any kind of economic shakeup. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. I'll get off of it for a little bit. No, it's a very good soapbox. I like it. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, that's the end of all my uh, questions and talking points. Good, Um, man. It sounds like it's been a it's been a good experience for you. It has been. It's been an interesting uh, an interesting ride um, because it's and you know it's not like I I don't feel like I know everything or anything like that, but it has sort of. I don't know. I feel like there's a like a, a new journey to embark on, mm-hmm. and um, I guess I just kind of want to understand it better because I feel like the way I came to understand it was so much. Like I said in the last episode, so much through like some kind of weird cultural osmosis where it's like if you just learn about the Bible just by just going to church every Sunday, it's like it's like a pieces of puzzle of like the scattered puzzle that just like kind of coming together in weird mm-hmm. spaces, you know, not like a thorough narrative it's why i understand buffy demonology better than christian demonology (laughs) 
Right. You know. There's a. Well, do you remember? Do you remember Terry Mattingly at PBA? Oh yeah, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his book Pop Goes Religion that came out a while back. I have a copy of it. And uh, T Matt um, does an interview with a Roman Catholic priest on Left Behind. Interesting. And and the, the Roman Catholic priest is like, yeah, he's like. Many many American Catholics believe this rapture stuff, even though it's not part of our theology, because he says we Catholics are terrible about talking about our own eschatology, and so people are just going to get it wherever they can. That's interesting. And well, it's uh, like Dante, right? Like that people started to latch on to Dante because right. he didn't have access to the Bible or the Scripture and stuff. Right. And yeah. so you know, part of it is on the church. We've done a really bad job of communicating this stuff, and. You know, I think a lot of it is actually out of convenience, right? Because as soon as the church becomes the tool of an empire, right, the preservation of status quo, the preservation of, you know, wealth and power and all of that becomes a very, you know, something people become very interested in. You know, the gospel as we're talking about it and the gospel as it's presented is, I mean, there's a reason why Roman, the Roman Empire killed Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't just, it wasn't just like, Okay, well, you you know, we'll do what you Jews want, right? Which is what we we grew up with. But like, yeah. the Romans saw a vested interest in killing this guy too, because they realized that he represented a threat to their hegemony and right. their power. Right. So, and there's a reason why Christians were being crucified by the Roman government in those early centuries, because mm -hmm. you got people running around saying like, "Hey, this." This uh, this 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 Palestinian guy who you know was dead but came back three days later, he's actually the king. He's actually the emperor. And now suddenly the empire is like, you know, right. we got to put we got to put a stop to that crap. Yeah. You know, if it didn't have an economic and political threat, they wouldn't have cared. Mm -hmm. But but now Christianity is seen is seen as a benign thing, or or at worst, it's seen as the preserver of the status quo. I mean, gosh, just watch the videos from the Capitol riot. I know. It's um, becoming more of a political philosophy, but like a really like a like a pres prescribed philosophy, not something that actually describes something, you know? Yeah, what is it? Um, John Milbank, English theologian, whose work I really like, he says... Christianity does not offer a political critique. It is a political critique. He's a he's a he's a he's a good old socialist. So <laughs> I think that's a good place to end that. Uh, next week we're going to round this all off, or top this all off with uh, a discussion of Pixar's Soul. So if you have a uh, Disney Plus account, check that out. It's on there. Highly recommend it if you want to tune in because we're going to get into spoiler territory so yeah, check it out check it out join us again next week uh subscribe oh and also yeah and also uh you know watch cocoon <laughs> one day we'll talk about cocoon but it is not this day it's a hard movie to watch ron howard is a very very edgy filmmaker um <laughs> you know he doesn't pull any punches that ron howard uh, he really tells it like it is, not afraid of any kind of critique, any kind of backlash, any kind of cultural responsibility. You know, it's like him and Pasolini. You probably don't know who that is, but I don't. <laughs> okay, don't look it up. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, one of our, uh, somewhere, one of our listeners is like yelping with laughter. <laughs> Pasolini directed a movie called uh, Sallow, 120 Days of Sodom. Um, I just ended that. It's supposed to be considered like one of the 
most disturbing movies ever made, and Pasolini was murdered over it. So, oh, in the streets by fascists. Anywho, there you go. That's where we end. <laughs> so don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a comment, do all that stuff. Ring some bell. I don't know. Don't ring the bell. It's so obnoxious. I started ringing bells on the YouTube channels I follow, and it's obnoxious. Don't do that. We're only once a week. You should know by now. When yeah. we go up. And also, and also, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you do. If there's any goofy things to do if you're like listening to us on your phone or whatever but do those things too um subscribe because like all the bell ringing and all that oh i guess subscribe. okay yeah <laughs> thumbs up somewhere right thumbs up on some of them i don't know <laughs> so thank you so much father chuck you're welcome bro thank you to our audience for listening and we'll see you again next week good journey good journey